Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I get into today's episode, I wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping, starting with thank yous. I want to express my sincerest gratitude to all of the people who are still, and I mean still, donating to the podcast. Your help via Patreon, whether you're a dollar donor or a $5 comrade, really aid this podcast immensely. You're literally helping us grow. And I do mean us right now, because with your support, I've been able to bring on Richard, who is my co-host for the Reading Revolution series, uh, where he and I read and discuss the work of leftists of color and the writings that inspired them. You've also helped me expand the podcast family to include two new assistants, Ariana and Natalia, whom I will put out more information on very soon. I also have some other positions in mind that I'll be announcing soon. So again, thank you for your donations. I'm actually able to give these new members of the Left Pocket Project decent pay as a result of those donations. I've also been able to implement a new practice, and this is also retroactive, of remunerating guests and providing a donation to the organization of their choice. With your help, I'm able not only to expand and sustain the Left Pocket Project, but I'm also able to give back to a variety of communities and the people whose hard work aligns with the ideology of the project itself. If you would like to donate, please visit patreon.com slash leftpoc to show your support. I'd also like to thank everyone who's been very patient over the summer while I've been doing research and traveling, which has made it a bit harder for me to put out as much content as I usually would. For example, I recorded this podcast episode with Richard a week ago while I was in Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil, but now I'm in Lisbon, Portugal, and soon we'll be recording from Maputo, Mozambique. So yeah, your girl is busy and tired, but I'm doing the best that I can to keep up with the project. So again, sorry for all the delays, but thank you, really, I mean thank you, for those who've stood with us on this wild ride and continue to interact with, share, and donate to the project. So again, thank you so, so much. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about the project, please visit the Left Pocket Project on Twitter at LeftPOC, on Facebook by typing in LeftPOC, and check out the podcasts on iTunes, Spreaker, and SoundCloud. Again, by looking up LeftPOC. <laughs> Finally, all of our content is free to the public and will remain that way thanks to your donations on patreon.com slash LeftPOC. Okay, so now let's get on with the show. For this episode, Richard and I will be discussing politics in the U.S. from domestic to foreign. I'll give an update on what's happening with the Brazilian presidential elections, and we will also chat about some things that we see happening in the U.S. on what we consider sort of the popular left uh, that give us pause. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Richard, my comrade in arms for Reading Revolution. And today we're actually going to break from the norm. We're not going to do a Reading Revolution. We're just going to kind of do a, a news and politics and opinion break of sorts. Um, I don't know what to call it. We should come up with a cool name for like when Reading Revolution takes a day off and just talks, chats. But I don't I know. could brainstorm a bit before this. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
sure we'll come up with something. You see how we're prepared, right? We're like super prepared. Um, but yeah, next time we'll come. If if I come up with a name between now and the end of the episode, or if you come up with a name between now and the end of the episode, we will just call it that. Um, mm. But between <laughs> between you and me, yeah, we don't have a name yet. But if you guys have a good name, also for those who are listening, if you want to send us a name, perhaps of when we take a break from reading Revo- like reading revolution chat. Um, <laughs> which is terrible. <laughs> Feel free to send us a message. Um, so yeah, so we're just going to do that today. We're going to have a little bit of an off the cuff, like touch on a few issues, but nothing um, that we actually read before coming in other than of course our basic uh, news and journal kind of things. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention really quickly is if you are listening to this, consider becoming a $5 comrade or a dollar donor over at patreon.com, which kind of helps things keep rolling here. Um, I am currently speaking to you all from Sao Paulo, Brazil. So you may hear some extra noise in the background. My internet may be a little crazy. My voice may be a little weird. Uh, so just to give you guys a heads up, sometimes my internet is, it has a problem with me. (laughs) Uh, Richard, what's going on with you? Tell us about things over in the West Coast. Oh, it's uh, it's been interesting. Uh, I've been really just trying to do a lot more learning, you know, more listening, less talking in general, like uh, both online and then just when I'm going into various political spaces and just listening to people and hearing their stories. It's one of the things I picked up from our first episode of Reading Revolution from the uh, Castro piece. Uh, and so, like, I've been learning more. Uh, I've been learning more and more along those lines. And that's been helpful for me and uh it's also i mean sometimes it's more antagonizing but uh, i find that uh by not responding to some of the more absurd things i hear depending on the space i'm in uh that eventually it passes by and so that's been a little easier Uh, as far as the news has gone i mean you know it seems like the country's on fire both literally and figuratively uh yeah jesus that's true wildfires and such and so i mean uh, institutions seem to be failing that concerns me like and the there's a lot of people in this country that have a lot of faith in our institutions and you know to see like basically the trump administration kidnap a bunch of kids and the courts say hey you got to return those kids and they'll be like yeah we'll get to that yeah. uh, just kind of and, and the you know the rumors about kavanaugh and all this stuff without getting too much into the the drama of it but just the actual functionality of these institutions as they work to maintain the image of the United States and the functionality of our government seem to be in, in a lot of trouble and it doesn't necessarily seem like there's a, there's a good way out. So uh, with elections just around the corner and then 2020 will basically kick off within a month or two after the November elections. Uh, That's what, what the leftist, uh, I don't know, strategy to handle that going forward is also on my mind. Those are the kind of, without getting too much that's that's where i'm at <laughs> all right see this is the thing right so i've one of the things i've noticed is whenever we have these talks what ends up happening is your like your uh prognosis or your i don't know what you would call it but your your overview on the u.s like whenever i ask you how are things going you're like everything is terrible like don't <laughs> everything is terrible right and then right. and then and then i'm kind of like okay everything's like shitty but you know we're gonna work it out but then when it comes time for us to talk about a book Usually I'm the one who's like, everything is terrible. This person is wrong. They left out this. They didn't do this. And you're like, no, but you know, so I feel like we have, we have like inverted. 
<laughs> approaches to what we read versus what's going on in real life. So it's kind of interesting to to notice that trend. But um, thank you for that. And the, you know, kind of broached a few topics that we're definitely going to get into, especially in terms of the midterms and voting and kind of what the hell is going on in the U.S. Because being here in Brazil, I mean, obviously, I get most of my news at this point from things that I see on Twitter in general. And whenever I'm out of the country and I see stuff on Twitter and then I like watch the news here or I see something like when, because on, on the subways here, they have little like script television screens that show, you know, just like bits of news here and there. And uh, I'm always like, oh my God, like, look at the US. It's just such a mess. Like, it's really just, it makes me sad. Like, right. you know, come the other day I went to, um, the other day I went to, uh, a book launch for the at the institute the Paulo Freire Institute, which I've always been bigging up, you know, over the past couple of weeks. Uh, everyone should really, if they can, get in touch with me if you're interested in supporting the Paulo Freire Institute. This is not a sponsored post, by the way. Like I just really appreciate what they're doing. Uh, for those who maybe don't know, Paulo Freire was a really radical, revolutionary um, teacher, to be honest, and he he often combined. Um, you know, ways of learning how to read and teaching in general to the general public with their everyday circumstances. Um, and he called this the pedagogy of the oppressed. So many of you may have heard of that book, uh, but this is the institute that is that was uh, created in his honor. And he actually, you know, his desk is still there. His coffee cups are still there. All of his books are there. Like, it's kind of crazy. You go and you're like, oh, Paulo Freire was here, right? Um, and they do a lot of work with local communities still, helping people learn to read, helping people become more politically aware, teaching people about base, you know, meeting their basic needs, et cetera. So it's a really cool organization. You all should really check them out. And they don't get any government funding and any sorts of affiliations they have had with government have been cut recently because of the Denver government. It's a long story. But anyway, if you're interested in donating to them, get in touch with me because it's kind of complicated. You have to the way things donations usually work here is you have to do a bank transfer, but you can do it online through a, um, a special program. So I can talk to you through that process because everything's in Portuguese, obviously. So if you need any help, please let me know. Anyway, long story short, I was at this book launch because they have a book that just came out about um, that was like sort of reflections on the way that his um, ideas of teaching and, and politics in general continue to live on in the present. Um, and a lot of people were there who were like friends of Paulo Freire, older, you know, elderly people who were alive during the dictatorship and had, to, who really went through some stuff, um, and have lived to tell about it. And, you know, one of the things that, that I really appreciated when I was there was the fact there was a guy who said, you know, when I was, he was, he was telling the story of a friend of his who had been tortured by the dictatorship. And one of the things he said was, you know, um, I, when I was being tortured and it was painful and it was terrible, but I wasn't thinking about the pain. I was thinking about how afraid I was that I would end up ratting out somebody. Right. And so this is this in intense idea of loyalty to a cause and things like that, that really like, I don't know, make you think twice about nothing twice, but I guess really, really rethink like your own connection to your cause or your own your own sort of devotion to a particular set of politics and how real that is for you and how those things get put to the test at moments like this right when everything feels like it's falling apart when when we do see you know creeping authoritarianism all around the world uh when we when we look into the u.s and like i said you know i look at the u.s and i say oh my god what the hell is going on but then i'm here and i'm also saying oh my god what the hell is going on right like there's no i feel like there's no escape there's nowhere to run right now um where there's any sorts of 
it doesn't it doesn't feel like a, a moment of hope to be honest and i hate feeling like that but sometimes it gets you get really down because you're thinking like oh my god everything is a flame um but someone had asked me at that event they were like oh where are you from you know we were just like introducing ourselves and um Uh-oh. And I, <laughs> yeah, and I, because the, the sad part is that, so usually, I think I've mentioned this here, but usually everyone here thinks I'm Brazilian. Even when I talk, like, usually they, they think I'm Brazilian because I have a pretty decent accent. And what ends up happening, though, is that sometimes once people do find out I'm from the U.S., it becomes like a big deal. And I usually don't like that. Um, so when I went to the event, one of the guys who worked there knew that I was coming from, he knew that I was from the U.S. because I, it was, it's a long story, but anyway, he introduced me to someone else as, oh, this is Wendy. She's from the U.S. <laughs> so I became like the American girl. Like I was the foreigner. Right. Um, and so anyway, that night, that day, um, when I was talking to someone and she asked me, you know, like when he introduced me as like, she's, he said like, she's a foreigner, like she's from another country. And the person I was speaking to said, oh, where are you from? And I said, unfortunately, I'm from the U.S. And she looked shocked because she was like, well, where else would you rather be from? Like she asked, she literally asked me, she said, why are you, why are you like, why are you saying unfortunately? Like, where would you, where else would you rather be from? And I was like, it's a long story, but basically like I'm embarrassed of what my government has done to countries like yours. And I, you know, I, I'm proud to be who I personally am, but I'm not necessarily proud to be from the U S right. Um, and, you know, I think that's something when, when I look and see what's happening there right now, especially although this has been a longstanding issue, it's not just under Trump, it's like under every U.S. president, there's been terrifying foreign policy. Um, and, you know, it makes you it makes you feel like you're carrying a weight with you, a, a weight and like kind of a dark cloud sometimes. And And I do my best to really be humble in these situations and understand my place as a USCN in other countries. But sometimes it's like you, you can't help what other people, what other images people have of your country. Um, and you just have to be, you have to do your best to be a representative of yourself as an individual. Um, because you know, for sure that there are other Americans that they're going to meet who are not going to be um, <laughs> politically <laughs> where you are or interested in their own, their, their plight or give a shit about what's happening in this, in the country that they're, you know, that they're in, that's not the U S. So anyway, sorry for that long rant, but yeah, <laughs> that's no. what's going on. No, I relate. And like you said, you mentioned the, like, you know, like rethinking and like really examining the concept of, you know, your dedication to your cause. And it's like, that's on my banner on Twitter. I have the Fred Hampton quote, you know, it's like, why don't you live for the people? It's like, okay, I can do that. That sounds, that sounds reasonable enough. Like I'm not trying to mess over anybody else. So like, I can do that. And it's like, why don't you struggle for the people? Okay. That's, that's work. That's not going to be easy, and it's for other people, you know, or for the people. And it's like it should include me, and so I can I can get behind that. And it's like, why don't you die for the people? It's like, whoa, that that <laughs> that, that, that that sounds like mostly downsides. <laughs> right. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to examine and understand this and what what this means before I can commit to that, rather than just proclaim it like I like I own that that part of that when I'm uh, I may or may not be that dedicated to my cause and like you know i might be in that situation worried i'm gonna you know turn on one of my comrades and like Mm -hmm. i don't want to be out there proclaiming on one thing when in reality i'm i I haven't absorbed my my beliefs in a way that allows me to be to be that steadfast in them so i think that is important that people do that and when you and i found as i'm doing that that i i come to a deeper understanding of where i actually am versus where I'm get the, the information that I'm getting from the various sources that I've been collecting has kind of guided me. Mm-hmm. I would, speaking of guidance, 
uh, and speaking also of, you know, camaraderie and having a real dedication to your politics and your ideology, what the hell is going on with the midterms right now? I mentioned that because I'm thinking of one person in particular who we will talk about in a little bit, but I just feel like people are getting into office or getting close to getting into office. And then they all of a sudden like turn, they just turn into, they like tuck tail and run and they're afraid to stand by what helped get them elected in the first place. And I'm really just confused about like where, like, when are we, when are we, I, I think part of it has to do with the democratic party for sure, but I'm just wondering like, what are your thoughts on, if and when we'll get to the point where leftists or left-leaning people can actually be proudly left-leaning and stand by principles that put them in those positions that they're in and do that and and still maybe work within the Democratic Party? Like, is it possible? I just, I'm, I myself, I'm looking at the situation like, I, I don't know if it's possible right now. Yeah I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this, I feel this argument's kind of been uh, reiterated in a few different ways, but uh, one of the more re more recent ones coming after 2016 or around 2016 was the whole dem enter versus dem exit strategy moving mm -hmm. forward for leftists you know it's like mm -hmm. do you go into the democratic party and try and change the party or do you operate from outside the party and try to make them defunct that way and both have their own challenges and uh, their own what are at least perceived as impossibilities and that what i what it seems like we're seeing uh, so far and in a lot of ways, and it seems to kind of be what you're describing as well, is what a lot of people uh, suggested would happen or predicted uh, with that the party, that you don't change the party, the party changes you. That mm. the, the power dynamic doesn't allow uh, a person to get in and, and do the kinds of things that they're talking about. And by the time you get enough of the alleged uh, you know, progressive left into those positions, they've already shifted so far to the right or progressive left politics has, has gone so far left that they essentially stand in and perform most of the same tasks as the people they were sent to replace and to move away from. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what this kind of feels like it's manifesting. This is, we're seeing that play out. It's, uh, it's early yet. And I mean, these are special elections all with unique circumstances uh, specifically locally and then funding from the national parties and how they play nationally. When the midterms happen it's going to be a different dynamic of races when where more races are nationalized and uh the you your vote for your local politicians becomes more of a vote for which part of america are you rooting for are you rooting for uh, the trump part or the liberal part there isn't really a moderate uh, republican part to support mm -hmm. other than what it's going to be what the liberal wing wants to fill in fill that space with they want to fill that right. in. i mean the liberal ring <laughs> the liberal wing is the moderate republican right <laughs> they're one in the like same like, yeah and I, I feel that way that they they seem very averse to that kind of characterization <laughs> right of course i mean and i think it has to do with like labels right i mean if you if you it's kind of like if you've been buying like gucci your whole life Right. Like, not that that's me. Um, <laughs> I don't have that kind of money. But let's say you've been buying Gucci your whole life. And then all of a sudden, like Gucci's quality goes down and you're going to still keep you're going to keep buying it. And you're going to be like proud of your ability to buy it. And you might complain a little bit to like, oh, the quality's gone down. But like, you're not going to like air your dirty laundry and be like, I love this. I love this like $20,000 jacket I bought, but look at the stitching. It's not that nice. It's not the same, you know, like people still mm. want it, but people are still going to fucking buy. I'm sorry. F word alert. Um, <laughs> people are still going to buy Gucci because it's Gucci, right? Whether or not the seams are messed up 
people are going to buy it and like have pride in their ability to to wear that and to be able to afford that. And I think in some ways, like the Democratic Party right now is that it functions as a is almost like a consumer label, right? In the sense that mm-hmm. people they know people if, if you're you know that you're not going to vote Republican, especially if you're coming from certain demographic groups in the US, where you just you feel like the Republicans are literally threatening your life all the time, uh, and mm-hmm. your livelihood. But then at the same time, like, there's no one else to vote for. But you know that like the Democrats are in your head, or in the in in society's sort of framing of it, the lesser of two evils, and it's that label. Like you go for the label, whether or not the seams are falling apart, because you know, like, well, you're buying Gucci, right? So it's fine. Like <laughs> you're buying Gucci, you're not buying like whatever else is out there. You're buying Gucci, so that's you're gonna just stick with that. This is a really bad analogy, but it's the closest that I could get. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like labels. It's literally like it's, it functions like a like a consumer label at this point. Yeah, it well, you're not gonna you're not gonna buy the goosey the the even if it's like you know it's got one C or whatever and it's the stitching's right. nicer, <laughs> but because the label is the wrong label, you're not gonna get that one. Right. <laughs> you're like, gonna get the one with the right label. Yeah. Because let's be real, some counterfeit items look nicer than the real thing. Um, but. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think people are just stuck on that. Like, I think people are used to one thing, they don't want to deviate from it. And I think the party knows that very well. And they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't want to deviate from like, the weird thing is that this is the weird part, right? So they are deviating, they're going further Mm -hmm. and further, right? Like they're going back to like the the Civil War era Democratic Party at this point. And like, like, so they're okay with that kind of transition, but they're not okay with it. Like they're, cause they're always like, Oh, Bernie's not a Democrat or so-and-so is not a Democrat. Okay. Well, what if being a Democrat now is kind of shitty and y'all need to look at yourselves and say, we're, mm-hmm. we've gone too far to the right. We have to do something else. Like no one's willing. It seems like no one's willing to like, at least within the party right now, have that kind of discussion. And I don't know what, it, I don't really know what it's going to take to get them to recognize that they've gone to a point where like the US public is rejecting them wholesale pretty much. Yeah. It's like they, they don't they, care. No, exactly. They seem to be going in the opposite direction. I'm pretty sure like MSNBC recently had uh, basically a dedication to St. Reagan for like most of oh. their their programming and it was just it was obscene. It's just like they're like, "Oh, look at how how wonderful even look how Reagan, you know, really embraced immigration and all these it's like no, <laughs> he was, no, he, was, he, and he like tortured people in other freaking countries. Like, look right. at what he I mean, every time I think of Reagan, the first thing that mm-hmm. pops in my mind, just because of the area of my focus is Latin America. Like, look at what he did in Latin. He just like destroyed millions of people's lives because of like, oh, they had some some semblance of left leaning governance or like a they had like one activist somewhere in the middle of God knows where it was like maybe we should have you know decent health care and then they're like okay let's just kill villages of people that's pretty much what happened you know like this is mm-hmm. that's why i'm like i'm getting angry but i'm just like why are people praising reagan like this is insane right? it's like upside down world you know like what right? is happening? It, it's like nobody like you guys should your your phone line should be lighting up with angry people like yeah. what is going on it's like where in you know it, we, we saw it early on with the caping for the fbi and mm-hmm. other intelligence agencies based around CIA the Russian and- yeah it's like it was like wait a minute you you know these are terrible horrible organizations it's like the fbi is still in a building named after the guy who masterminded the trying to get martin luther king to kill himself like mm-hmm. this is like they, they don't feel like they might have some you know moderate levels of you know some sort of oh i'm sorry you know some vague apology it's like no it's like quite clearly they they view themselves as you know upholding the honor and integrity of this country and so on and so it's like 
these these places, these people, these groups have done some of the most atrocious things. What comes to my mind right now is, you know, the U.S., and, which I noticed in most media has been called the, you know, the Saudi-led, Saudi-led. <laughs> Right, Saudi and it's like U.S.-backed Saudi-led. <laughs> Don't forget that U.S.-backed part. Like, we're literally refueling their planes for them and giving them all sorts of weapons and funding. Like, get the hell out of here with that. It's not Saudi. I mean, yes, it's Saudi-led, but it's, like, U.S.-funded, so. And it's not as if they're pursuing interests that we haven't approved. It, it, you know, right. It, it, like, and if even if, you, even if we give lip service to our opposition to them, we're still giving them the weapons and they're still getting dropped. And in this case, on, you know, school children in a school bus. Yeah, I like, saw that. It still that has our like name it. on it. It still has our name on it. <laughs> I mean, it's just straight. I'm just going to be straight up. It's terrorism. Like right? this, you know, when I know there are debates. Not the reclaimed good version that we've talked about before. This, this is like the, all the negative connotations of terrorizing oh, yeah. people into submission. Yeah, this is this is just straight. It's state terrorism with, uh, you know, under the U.S. flag. And it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying as an American to look at this happening and it's being done in our names and like. Personally speaking, like I, I saw the the reports the other day about the Yemeni children. And, you know, every time I see something also that has to do with Palestine, like all of these sorts of which we should go back to in a minute, speaking of midterms. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I just I don't understand how people can look at these things happening. Right. And then go run for office and then continue to fund it, continue to vote in favor of this kind of this kind of nightmare policy. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And then go home at night and sleep. Go home and look at their families. Go home. Go home and look at you know, hang out with their friends and act as if nothing is happening. Like it, it's very. It, maybe it's a fault of my own that I actually care about other people or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm the one who's messed up. <laughs> like I don't I, get it. Like you, you know, yeah, it's on like, me. Yeah. I mean, it's really, and it, it weighs heavily because, you know, this is what I'm saying. Like when I introduce myself, I'm like, I'm unfortunately American. Like this is, this is the stuff that I look at and I say, I am embarrassed by, I am ashamed of. And I'm also just like terrified that it's, it's my tax money that's going to that. Like it is my money that's funding the murder of innocent children, of children. I don't care about innocence. Like let's scrap the, I don't even, it's like habit for us to say that. Innocence is irrelevant here because what we're doing is our country is terrorizing people in other places and it's wrong, period. And I think that there's got it. I mean, they're terrorizing people, not just in other countries, but within the U.S. too. We have a separate discussion about that. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a real, um, I don't know. I just wonder, like, when is the moment of reckoning going to come for people who claim to be representatives of those who are the downtrodden? Because they're not representing people within the U.S. They're not representing people outside of the Like, who are the only people they're repping? It doesn't even seem like it's donor-driven at this point. Because some of the even some of the people who are not getting government fund or who are not getting private funding for their elections are still doing messed up stuff in terms of their their foreign policy. And I don't know what it's going to take to get our government officials, especially those who claim to be, you know, democratic leading or left leaning to care about other people uh it, it, it doesn't in like the one thing i was gonna say is like you know just change the labels of uh who did it and then they'll get outraged and, right. but, like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but we saw that with the uh with the kids in cages mm -hmm. and you know the pictures coming from the during the obama administration and then suddenly you know a bunch of liberals look at it and they're like they look closely at it and they they come to the conclusion that this looks like nothing to me uh, oh my know? god west just about to say they look at these images and they they look at the like they look at headlines that say like you know obama or bush or clinton or whomever came before trump was also doing xyz thing and it doesn't look like anything to me 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, whoop. And, it's and like we, no register. And you have to move on. Like, there's just, like, if you, there's nowhere to go from there. Yeah. And and uh, that that's incredibly frustrating. And it, like you know, lesser evilism tells me this is what I have to like basically end up supporting in order to stave off the Republican apocalypse. And I was like, that is not a, a future I'm willing to accept. And so it's like I don't know how to fix it, but I know I got to learn. And so that's why I've been doing what we've been doing. And in that process, it's not always you know optimistic. It doesn't always leave me feeling optimistic about the situation that we face. No. And I just, I mean, I, I hate to be like Debbie Downer, but I really, I look at this, I look at what's happening in terms of, you know, or what has been happening. I have to keep like changing my tense, my verb mm-hmm. tense, you know, cause it's not, it's not about like what just happened or what's happening now. It's like, what has been happening for hundreds of years basically, but it's just, it's kind of, it's overwhelming. Like, I'm just going to be straight up honest. Like it's overwhelming. And sometimes I get to the point where I'm like, why am I even doing this? Like, does it, it's not going to make a difference. Am I going to, if, if I write a book about whatever, if I do a podcast, if I, it doesn't matter. Like it, I get to this point sometimes where I feel very nihilistic about things, you know, Mm -hmm. where I just, am like, I don't know what to make of our society and I don't know how to fix things. And while it's all, it's very helpful to read people like Carlos Mariello, which we did in the last few episodes. And we talked about, you know, how you have to avoid this kind of feeling because even the small things you can do can like lead to a greater, like they build to a much greater sort of sense of revolution. It's Mm -hmm. still just, it's, it's tiring and I don't know what to do. And I, I'm one of those people where like, I think voting matters because there are certain policies that like you do need people in office to approve or to change or whatever, like every day, you know, especially like local candidates are like, yeah, super especially important. at the local level, you can make like impactful, like material changes to people's lives as a result yeah. of elections. Yeah, Pro- but at like, the particularly same- at the local level, not with your local national representative. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then at the same time, I look at people like, I mean, no shade. Okay, actually, lots of shade. Alessandria Castillo <laughs> Cortez, who, you know, on the one hand, is is saying things that I think I think a lot of people are like getting really excited about her without fully understanding what she's saying or maybe missing. I think like, I think much like we saw with Bernie, right? I think people are using her as like a Rorschach test. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're looking at her and they're seeing whatever they want to see. And then when she disappoints, then it's like, all hell breaks loose. Right. And I, I, I myself was, I was, you know, I, I, I think I also fell for that, right? Because I, mm-hmm. at first, when I heard about her, I was like, oh, this is great. Like, you know, representative from the Bronx and she's a young woman and she's Latina and she's left. This is amazing. Like, great, you know, good. And she seems to have a good head on her shoulders and she has good ideas on the domestic level. And wow, she even said something against like the what's happening in, in, in Palestine. That's great. And then when she started doing interviews and they would ask her about things that like, yeah, when she gets into office, she's going to have to freaking vote on. And she's like, I don't know enough. I, don't, I mean, what do you need to know? Like I, when I, when I saw all that, I was kind of like, or for those who maybe I guess for anyone who's listening, you're most likely on Twitter, but if you're not and you haven't seen all the drama over this, basically she did an interview with a kind of right-leaning network who asked her about the situation in, in Israel and Palestine. And and she had tweeted something in the past where she mm-hmm. referred to what's happening as an occupation, which is accurate, which is mm-hmm. what even is, the Israeli state has referred to it as in the past, um, which the UN refers to it as. I mean, this is not like some out of the blue, like random... Um, label but she referred to it as an occupation and she also mentioned you know this is is basically like a violation of the human rights of Palestinians okay 
you know, nothing, nothing super controversial. Um, and she was questioned about it and she kind of started to backtrack on her own statements. And she said she was in favor of a two state solution and blah, blah, blah. And then, and she hadn't done enough research. And I just said to myself, you know what, like we, when we talk about, for example, the situation that's happening to black people in the United States in terms of police brutality, right? We see people getting murdered. And we're seeing this in Palestine too. Like I, I, I'm not trying to be reductive here. I understand that there are different circumstances and whatever. That's that's not the point that I'm trying to make. But the point I am trying to make is we see these things. We know what's happening. We have basic enough facts to see that one group of people is being brutally attacked. One group of people has a lot of state power. One group of people has a lot of weapons. One group of people has a lot of funding. One group, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just completely mm-hmm. disproportionate responses to literally just the existence of Palestinian people. And I don't think you need, you don't need to have a PhD in Middle Eastern studies to look at the, just like you don't need to have a PhD in African American studies or history to look at the situation and say, innocent people are being murdered. Innocent people are being targeted because of whatever difference the state has decided puts a target on their back in which in their case, they're Palestinian. Um, and you know, it's like, it's, it's colonialism and it's frustrating for me. I'm getting angry because I'm just like, uh, you know, like you could probably feel it, but it's frustrating for me because I'm like, what the hell? Like you, you cannot, you, I mean, how, how can you fix your mouth to be like, oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not like, I, I, I don't understand it. I just don't understand it. And there's nothing, there's nothing like unclear about what's happening because I think sometimes people try to act like, well, you know, the Jewish people, the, the Jewish people from Israel were there first. But even you can have that argument if you want, whatever. It doesn't matter who was there first. If one group is being brutally murdered, right? Mm-hmm. Like in cold blood, children, pregnant women, everybody, it doesn't matter. Like you cannot look at that situation and sit, talk to me about history when you see what's happening in the present that is completely wrong. And you don't, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, I, I don't want to get into an argument about who was there first because it doesn't freaking matter if you're looking at the situation that is unfolding right now in the present and it's their land and they're being removed from their land, they're being murdered. And it's, it's just like when we talk about, you know, indigenous, indigenous population in the U S being terrorized for hundreds of years, continuing to be terrorized. And then people want to talk about let's live in peace together. What? <laughs> Let's have don't, a two state don't punch me back. is what they're saying. Don't hit me back though. The other day I said, the other day, I, you know, I was on Twitter and I said, you know, the two state solution is like these people who like to go out and, and talk about, you know, let's hear both sides. Like I, I said, mm. it's it's like someone burning your house down and then talking about, but I, I want to hear both sides. Like what <laughs> other side is there? You just burnt my house down. Like there's no right. other side to that. I don't have a house anymore. You put my life in danger. You put my family's life in danger. And you want to talk to me about the other side. You just lit a match and like blew up my house. Like, you know what I mean? There's no... Mm. With the same caveat that you mentioned about, like, you know, not being the same, I I can't help but usually see things through the lens of my experience as a black man in America. And so, like, what comes to my mind is the phrase, like, the Chris Rock popularized it, but a sociologist did the, like, did the question a long time ago, but asked a room full of white people, how many of you want to be black, basically? And nobody raised their hand. It's like, you didn't need a PhD to figure that out, right? Like right. you knew that black people are getting screwed over in this country. You know it. Like, right. Right. You don't need to learn more to figure that out. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And the answer from most white people, whether they be left, right, middle or wherever, is not enough to change anything. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's the bottom line. And it's like 
the refusal to confront that either domestically with the situation with a race or internationally, be it mm-hmm. Israel or any of the other conflicts that the U.S. is imposing on nations around the world, like until you we confront that issue, that that that's really where it's at. And uh, I think me and Wendy talked a little bit beforehand, but like this also plays into the the role of oppressed people within the United States. But it's like the the burden is really on white people. It, it mm-hmm. like you guys have the ability and the power and the lever, your hands on the levers of power. It's your decision to make. All we can do is get behind the right white people or in the ideal situation, those right white people that, that represent as the labels, as we referred to earlier, you know, your Bernie's or your Ocasio-Cortez's or like obviously a minority, but, you know, the situation as a, I'm describing. It's, it's like, power are, are, yeah, exactly. Use those la- like those labels actually stand by the, the what they're hearing from those oppressed communities. Like and mm-hmm. they merely, uh, you know, reflect them into the national discourse rather than you know, trying to tone them down and make them digestible for the national discourse, just bring them raw and uncut as they are and, and present, and, you know, stir that animosity and, or not stir it, as, uh, but bring it to that sur- to the surface. And right. what is there you to know. tone down? I mean, what right. is, like, this is the thing that bothers me, right? So when mm-hmm. I when I saw her response, the first thing I thought to, because a lot of people were bringing up, they were coming up with excuses for her. Let's just be real. A lot of people right. were kind of Ocasio-Cortez apologists at that moment (laughs) and you know god bless them but like let's be like let's just be real that's what was happening and i think if she were any other person um if she were a regular democrat who hadn't declared herself a democratic socialist no one would be caping her for her like that on the left um Mm. and i think people like to establish favorites early on before they fully understand what's going on and then they stick to that like it's a freaking football team when she's out there acting like Palestinians aren't human because that's what backtracking on this issue is. And so I have a real problem when like people are acting like, like she has to tone down, but like tone down for what? Like for who? (laughs) Tone down for what? You gotta, like at this point you need to get turned up about human Mm -hmm. rights. If you care about human rights, don't walk back during an interview with a right winger who doesn't care about what you say. And I mean, the the right winger is going to frame whatever we say as like blood red communism. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Especially if she's already said she's running as a Democrat, she's running as a democratic socialist. Like they're going to tear her up anyway. She should just go full fledged, hard in the paint for whatever she believes in. And I think that's where I'm frustrated because I'm like, she's running for... First of all, she's running in the Bronx. She is not running in a district that has a population that's like really super concerned with the state of Israel as a, like, they're not like, I mean, for, from what I understand about the the demographics of her, where she was, where she's representing, it's predominantly mm-hmm. Latino, right? Latino immigrants, children of immigrants. Um, and I don't, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, a lot of them aren't, their focus right now is not Middle Eastern politics, right? And so for me, I feel like I can understand if she is representing, a, like I, we see this a lot with Miami, right? Um, there's mm-hmm. a large, there's a large Jewish population. And a lot of them are elderly too, so it's like a completely different connection with the situation going. You know what I mean? Like I think, I think there's a kind of, um, there's a difference between if we're looking at which district she's representing and why she's speaking a certain way. But for her district, she doesn't have anything to lose. I mean, in terms of talking about foreign policy. Unless mm-hmm. she's gonna go up there and be like, "Yeah, let's let's support the Contras." Like she's not she's not gonna have anything to lose to talk about Middle Eastern politics, to talk about Israel Palestine, and so it's kind of strange to me, mm-hmm. and I think very apparent what's going on that she's doing this kind of shuffle ball change pivot of sorts toward 
trying to soften her approach on this issue. Like that's a that's a that's something that the party I think is making her do, or that she it, it may be even that she's not being made to do it. But I think that it's so, so hegemonic, the pressure is there that she feels like she's kind of self censoring. If that makes sense, because she knows she's going to get in trouble if she talks about the situation the way that she had before she became a, a well-known national figure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you said in there that I uh, really keyed in on was the politicians, you know, running on and then can't, and then governing on what they believe in. It's mm-hmm. even if I can concede that I'm not going to agree with every politician on every political stance. And, and I, I shouldn't because many of my political positions have changed. So I I've been wrong before, so I could be wrong about any given thing at any, any point. So like I, I, I concede that there's going to be differences of opinion what, where, where I struggle to find any sort of acceptable rationalization for is them not even, you know, representing what they're claiming to represent. That right. is, is it, it destroys the very functionality of the system. It undermines the whole system. Like it, it, as far as any sort of democracy in the sense that we have it in America can function. It, if they are not actually you know, presenting their ideas and what they mean. And then when people vote for those ideas and what they mean, that those are what they're going to see represented in their national votes. If that's not happening, then the system's completely broken down. And, right, and like, what's that, the point? Right. <laughs> and, and so and then when you tell people that, well, if you want it to get better, you have to vote for the people that are only there because of how broken the system is. And we'll never vote to change it because they are dependent on its existence as it is. And so like, so wait. I have no choice but to perpetuate this system is what you're telling me. That's it. Mm-hmm. And that's the best case scenario is for it to slowly get worse as the Democrats move to the, slowly to the right until they are living in corporate. Like- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like until we're in to- total corporate thiefdoms and, and we, we've abolished nation states for, you know, the Amazon, you know, the state Amazon and the, and the state of, you know, uh, Google. Until we've gone there, then is, this is this is your only choice. And by the time we get there, well, then revolution is pointless because they completely dominated society. So you might as well just fight for the best tasting gruel, you know, and like right. and yeah. double helpings of, of your, you know, human sustenance pill or whatever. Like this is this is <laughs> this is where they're leading us and with no alternative in sight. Like, oh, well, you know, eventually, eventually the country is just going to, you know, completely change from how it's been its entire history and go backwards to, or it's going to go shift this radical to the left. And all. It's like, no. And if it does, the only way that like by you're viewing it so far down the timeline, it's going to be incredibly violent. And chances are everybody's life is going to be worse than it was beforehand just because of all the destruction rot by having to try and take some sort of control over people's life, like of their own self-determination. <laughs> it's like, so that's not like, so the democratic party and, and where they're heading doesn't offer any, any sort of solution. And so you mentioned about your, like, I, I want to feel like voting matters and all those types of things. And like I said, you know, locally, it can actually have some material benefits to people, but like, when we look nationally and where we're heading as a nation and the political parties as they run and control the system, it they are offering no solution. So <laughs> if you're voting yeah. within those two parties, we're, we're, you're not going to get anywhere in the positive direction that you're really trying to head in the long term. Like it, that path is completely closed as far as I'm concerned meant to kind of address the question of dem enter versus dem exit. <laughs> yeah, now, I mean, there's no. What do you do with that? I don't know. That's another question. Go ahead, Wendy. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm. I oh, didn't no, I just wanted to were... finish that that part. So. Um. But yeah, I, I I don't know what to do at this point. Like, I feel like there's no 
there's no real representation. That's the mm -hmm. problem, right? There's no real representation of, of our, as a collective, like human beings, not you and me, but like mm -hmm. human beings, main interests uh, towards survival. Like there's no, there's no one out there that I can point to, at least in the US, in the US government, um, in the Senate, in the House. There are a few, I mean, there are a few, but I feel like there's always this weird compromise on things that they feel are sort of like throwaway issues, but that affect people's lives in real ways. <laughs> so like mm. when we talk about Israel-Palestine, it may, I, I might as well be talking about Mars to some people, right? Who are not as closely connected with this particular issue. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how disconnected they are from the issue because the freaking politicians have a major direct effect on what happens to people in these other countries, right? So it's mm. like, it's like we have, we have, we as we being like people who are from the United States or who live within the United States have the luxury of being able to ignore this stuff. Just like you were saying earlier, you know, with, with white privilege and the like have the luxury to kind of ignore what's going on right under mm -hmm. their nose because they're not experiencing it themselves. But like the decisions they make because they have power are detrimental to those people who are suffering right under their noses. You know what I mean? So like mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's what's so frustrating about the process because it may seem minute to the average voter. It may not seem like a big deal that foreign policy matters, but like if that were your house being burned down, if that were your your if that were your child being killed on a bus because some freaking wealthy Saudi U.S. backed you know person mm -hmm. in power decided to blow up a school bus, like these these if that were your life, if that were your child's life, if that were someone in your family's life, would you care then? You know, like, what's it going to take? What is it going? I just keep wondering to myself, like, what is it going to take for policy, politicians who people who have power in general to also have a sort of moral compass? Because we talk about we talk a lot about, like, not mixing morality and politics. But I think there also needs to be we need to have a moment where we, like, go back to talking about morality as a real political factor, because. I don't know. I just don't know what it's going to take. Like, I have no idea how to get people to care sometimes about what's happening in other parts of the world and to, to care about what's happening down the street from them because they never go to that neighborhood and they're afraid of the people who live there, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think what, when I hear you say morality, I think what some people might hear, but like what I hear actually is, you know, talking about a, a morality, not based off of uh, some sort of religious uh, scripture or anything like that, but like a, a morality of compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, like right. uh, I that could be me as a human being. And what would I want other human beings to think and feel and do if it was me in that situation? That like that kind of morality matters, you know, and exactly. that's what politicians are missing. You know, it's like they 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 love to use the talking points and like the the suffering cries of uh, the separated children's like they love to do use those for what they know are rhetorical points. But they don't really engage with it. They don't really understand mm -hmm. that that's a result of actions that you have or have not taken, things you have or have not said. Like, as your in your role as a politician in this country, especially a national politician, is like if you haven't been screaming from the top of your lungs about these types of issues long before Trump got here, like you bear responsibility for it. those cries are your fault as well. <laughs> right. 
it and the is, thing is, like, there's been a lot of, I think there's been a lot of pushback from people who've been bringing up Obama, who've been bringing up, like, not just, not just the immigration thing, but like U.S. foreign policy under Obama and things like that, because they say, oh, but you're flattening the issue and you're saying it's like the same between Trump and Obama and it's not. And like, whatever, I recognize that. And I'm, I, I think people sometimes, because we're on Twitter and we have a limited mm-hmm. number of characters, have to speak in a way that is reductive, but that gets a point across. And the point is, is that these are, Trump is not reinventing the wheel. He's building on systems that were in place that have been in place for a long ass time and that he's just taking full advantage of. Yeah, and I which think is there part are, of why they're, they're so helpless to stop him is because he's not really right. reaching that far outside of what's already been existing. Continue. That's exactly right. And there's there's not a, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people at the same time. I'm not one of those people who's like, it is exactly the same because it's not, you know, I think no, there yeah. is a, there is a degree of difference that we, I think we need to do more to understand as to not repeat, right? Because I think at this point, anyone who comes after Trump, they're like, as long as you're not separating them, you can continue to torture these families. You can continue to traumatize these children. As long as you're keeping them together, it's fine. Because that's what happened under Obama, right? So it's okay. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I'm afraid of as well. Like whoever gets into office, if, if Trump doesn't win in 2020, which is, anyway, I I don't have any I mean, I'll go out there and say it's like, I mean, if Democrats get their way in the primary, Trump wins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We should we should start placing bets now. Like, how drunk am I going to get during the primaries? Because uh, it's it's looking real rough out there. Well, but I can I don't see any. Basically, every scenario every scenario that Democrats want ends up with Trump winning. Like, no matter yeah. what. So like, so we have, there's a very like, small share of possibility that includes a not Trump presidency, and that heavily relies on get out the vote by leftists and swallowing a pill and voting for somebody that we don't even really like that much. <laughs> yeah, and who will likely continue a lot of Trump's policies or not be able to overturn them because the House and the Senate still may be Republican controlled, and mm-hmm. or that candidate may not give an F about those issues, much like we saw with Obama. Like, there's no, there's no easy... It's a bleak I don't know. Anyway. for a leftist electoral. <laughs> like, I mean, there's not a lot of sunshine on the horizon. No! Well, sorry and, if that's you what know... you came looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not gonna find that here. No sunshine on the Left Pocket Project podcast, which you should support by donating a dollar or more at Patreon. Um, <laughs> how's that for advertising? <laughs> right. I should call it madvertising, because I'm freaking mad at our political system, and we need to change it, so that's why you should donate and help us Stay mad and keep the same broke. Um, Exactly. But I I got time to be mad. That's right. I do want to take a minute, though. I want to take a minute while we're being mad for some advertising, like in real life. So I want to say two things, maybe more than two things, but they'll be quick. The first of which is um, thanks to your support, I've been able to hire two assistants. So we have two assistants. I'll do a separate podcast episode about them um, to introduce you all to the assistants and to kind of tell you more about what's going on on that front. But I have two assistants um, and one is named Natalia, one is named Ariadna. I also have uh, been able to donate to guests now. So I've been able to give remuneration to the guests for their time spent as interviewees for the Left Pocket Project, thanks to your support. And I have also been able to donate, a, make a small donation to the charity or organization of the guest's choice um, through those donations that you send on Patreon. So again, all this stuff sort of helps keep the ball rolling over here. The last thing I wanted to announce too is just the simple fact that um, I really do 
like use your donations for stuff related to the podcast. That's important because it funds the assistants. It funds Richard as well. Cause I pay Richard as the co-host for the um, reading revolution series. It helps me pay for guests as a thank you gift um, and a donation for them. Um, so these sorts of donations, they also help, I'm sorry, with like web storage because to have a podcast, it's like really heavy in terms of storage. It's like a few gigabytes of stuff that I have online and I have to pay for that to store it online. So like all of your donations are actually super, super helpful, even if they're just a dollar. Like it's, it's not, I know that it sounds like not a lot, but it actually is because if everyone, let's say like right now, I think the left pocket project has like 5,000 something followers, right? On Twitter. If everybody donated a dollar, just one dollar, can you imagine how much stuff we could get done? It would be like, it would be super helpful, actually. Like, I, I know that there are a lot of, there are a lot of podcasts out there who have enough money already. Like, let's just be real. Right. And they're not, they're not doing anything. They're not doing any research. They're not inviting on people who've done their research. They're not educating you. They're just telling you what you want to hear. And they're not making you think outside the box at all. So just remember that every time you see somebody who's lying to you and telling you what you want to hear and whatever, not really deeply thinking about the situations at hand or the situations around the world or situations in the situations in the past, whatever. And you're donating to them and you're not giving a dollar to the left pocket project. Shame on you. So donate. We're not the one there. There's other podcasts out there that do similar things like kind of similar to what's left pockets doing or like talks, gives you information, valuable information, although they do it in various different ways. Yeah. Uh, it, it, look out for those like i mean and if I somebody's got a thousand or more yeah exactly that's the other thing is like that's a good and, point <laughs> right it is like these like groups that are you know have thousands of patrons and they're collecting thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month if you're given one of them really think about it is your dollar better be, would it be more more valued or more useful there or here and i, I think you would yeah. find it more more appreciated for sure here without a doubt i can yeah. i can i can 100 guarantee you that I, i'll really appreciate your dollar a lot more than they will <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry for always talking over you there's a little bit of oh, delay no. um but i'm always i'm like really transparent too about what i do with your money like how i use your money how i spend your money which is um, and it goes back yeah and it goes back into helping keep this podcast running like I'm not pocketing it and going on vacation like it's literally like <laughs> funding like we I mean I give I give accounting statements to Richard every couple of months and he sees like oh all this money was spent to give donations to the guests organizations of choice okay we're not gonna get paid this month that's all right you know what I mean like so we we actually do to help support the podcast and to help support other organizations or not other but help support organizations that are doing really important work in their communities and around the world um and i also just want to say as well that like i what you mentioned richard was really important because i do actually support a lot of the podcasts that i feel are doing important work so um you know, like I do, I do donate, I take money that I get from the left pocket project and put it back into supporting other smaller, but I think doing very important work podcasts out there. Um, so, you know, yeah, and it makes, it, it makes better. a huge difference. Like <laughs> as somebody on the receiving end and then somebody, you know, has contributed to these things, you notice when people really appreciate what you're doing and your contributions. And so like, I, I feel both, you know, very humbled when people contribute and then also very thankful for like the support and it's what I've been, I, 
for me, particularly with the reading revolution aspect of this, it's it's a lot of growing and learning and understanding. And so, mm -hmm. uh, on that note, I, I I have to thank the the me various members of queer communities that I've been following on Twitter recently that have really opened up my my perspective and my understanding of a lot of things of uh, left understanding and one of the things that kind of stands out among the those those entities that I describe is that I've noticed that while I disagree with various uh, you know people on on the far left that I've started to encounter while trying to understand and learn more about communism socialism and uh, the history and past of movements and so on and so forth uh, I disagree with some of what they say and sometimes I feel like oh they're viewing this from an angle that's going to end up leaving me out like mm -hmm. th that their revolution will event like if their revolution satisfies these criteria, then they'll be satisfied enough that they're not going to be part of the revolution necessary to get the things that I I'm after. But I've never really felt that way from the 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 community, the queer communities and especially particularly those uh, of color and uh, from other outside the United States that whatever revolution they're fighting for is going to include me. I have no fear of it leaving me out and letting me be one of the new uh, oppressed people that substitutes the, the oppressed group that was in power before. And so that's actually been incredibly helpful. And it's something I've grown to, you know, it was like uh, as a junior high kid, you know, I was like most junior high kids and made the types of insults that uh, some junior high kids at, at that time did. And, to go from there to now, you know, looking at like uh, what would have been, you know, radically out of my normal view. Like, so like taking political advice from a drag queen with some, or like, or uh, a somebody on some various part of the queer spectrum, like that wasn't something I would have ever thought that that would have been where I was getting the best political knowledge that I was finding. You know, it was like, okay. well, I'm looking at these straight white men that I was trained and programmed to think had the knowledge that I needed are, are feeding me garbage. And even some of the, you know, uh, popular black figures or other minority figures that have moved on from a, into a higher class bracket. Uh, when I experienced that, it, it's just been a very enlightening experience. And so this whole thing and it being possible because of the donations has been very huge for me. And I can only hope that some part of that is being shared with the people that are able to listen and, uh, Wendy mentioned, and I'm going on a long diatribe, but this will be the last piece, uh, <laughs> the, the donations. Uh, my donation, I was looking at trying to do something that was more perpetual. Like I wanted to, it's, 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 you know, we have limited funds, so it's not like it's, you know, some, I'm giving a $10,000 giant check to anybody or anything, mm -hmm. but like, I wanted it to be uh, perpetual. I wanted it to continue. And so in that light, I looked at an organiza organization called Kiva, which basically does micro loans. It's kind of like a GoFundMe for uh, people in uh, around the world and not in the U.S. And so it's, it uses non-traditional uh, lending terms, but it's also backed by some of the who's who's list of some of the worst organizations in the or corporations in the country. But then I also think about the the aspect of you know we still use Google or you know Apple products or whatever, and and so there's this this conflict of capitalism and my ideas and what I want. And so if anybody has any uh, resources on that of something like Kiva, but with a better reputation or that works with less, uh, you know, questionable lenders potentially, because I know they have local things that would be a huge help. So uh, if you can't donate, if you could find something on that lines, you can help get money to people that could use it to make things better. So that's another way you can contribute, which uh, for those that don't have the funds, uh, I, 
it's always nice to be able to find stuff like that. So with that, I'll hand it back to Wendy. <laughs> yeah. So to explain, give a little bit of background. So because Richard is technically a guest, because he's a guest host, um, I also am doing a donation in his honor, um, as I've done with the other guests interviewees. And so that's what that's what he's talking about in terms of like looking for a place to mm -hmm. um give his donation to and I think that you raise a good point and that reminds me that I have to get back to you with my friend who does some work on micro loans uh, micro lending and she can help maybe as well with your question um but yeah that's that's always in conflict right especially even with just like charity or charitable organizations or NGOs there's always kind of this like feeling in the back of your head where you're saying, is it fully legit? Like once you start doing your research, mm -hmm. you realize who's funding it. And it really, we have to be careful because sometimes I think, you know, there are organizations that get money from these places, but they're not held to account by these places mm -hmm. that are. So for example, they may receive donations from seemingly sketchy companies or companies whose practices we have criticisms of, but that doesn't mean that those companies are necessarily saying to them, they have to conduct their business in X, Y, Z way. So sometimes, you know, that's why like when all mm -hmm. the craziness over Soros and stuff like that with donating, it was a little bit over the top because I don't think people fully understand how sometimes the donation cycle works. Like when you receive a donation or when you receive a grant, you're not always obligated to, um, like be silent on on certain issues they just they oftentimes a lot of these companies are donating for the tax break they're not mm -hmm. donating necessarily to say you can't talk about x y now sometimes like for politicians they definitely are um but for a lot of organizations like ngos and whatnot um that are like legit not like clinton foundation <laughs> style um but you know smaller organizations that are doing things that maybe have nothing to do politically with the groups that are funding them um they do have a little bit more flexibility or yeah. total flexibility. And I would, if somebody has information like that about Kiva, that would be uh, wonderful. And the basically yeah. where it boils down to me, especially is uh, I don't want to perpetuate uh, uh, what's the word, exploitive capitalistic mm -hmm. practices with the banking and lending. And I don't know what the institutions that they use locally, the, the reputations of those, whether they're basically, you know, shell operations for these big banks or whether they're, you know, legitimate small, you know, lenders within the communities that are based off of sound economic principles that uh, aren't excluded from the concept of socialistic enterprise. Right. So if you have a if you have any info on that, give Richard give Richard a tweet. Like slide into his DMs with information on microlending. Uh, that's done in an ethical way, right? Slide into yeah. The if you ears. don't know, at Road to Revolution is where you can find me. It's at yeah. Road Number Two Revolution. Okay, and uh, you can also send him a message on the Curious Cat for Left yeah. PSC, which I haven't checked in a while, so I need to. <laughs> <laughs> I've been busy, y'all. I've been busy and I've been tired, so I'm so sorry, but I will check it. We may have questions from like months ago that I haven't seen yet, so I will take a look at that. Um, but yeah, you should, I will check it this week. Um, and so if you send anything through, through Curious Cat or if you send him a, domest, a direct message, um, definitely do that. Do think of him um, if you have any additional info on that process. That would be great. Uh, so moving a little bit, um, we talked about the midterms somewhat, or at least we talked about certain candidates uh, for the midterms, talked about the limits of electoral politics as we see them because they're not <laughs> doing too great right now, um, at least in terms of left, left-leaning policies. Um, I just wanted to speak for a few minutes about what's going on in Brazil because, mm -hmm. and also just foreign policy in general and how to treat that as someone on the left. So, um, 
we're really just because we're talking about politics and electoral politics. So for people who may not be aware, this year is a presidential election year in Brazil. Um, the person who's leading in the polls is currently in prison. His name is Lula. His name is Lula. I mean, everyone calls him Lula, but his full name is uh, much longer than that. But that's a nickname. Um, and anyway, Lula is currently in prison because of a really weird judicial process here in Brazil. And he was charged with something that was never fully proven, um, that he that he was taking bribes by way of this like apartment complex that was in a beachside town. And it's, I mean, it's just a mess. It's just, the whole thing is like, I get frustrated even trying to explain it because it's it's clearly like a trumped up charge um, because there are people that are like massively corrupt um, that get, get off scot-free all the time and have for hundreds of years in Brazil and they've never seen a court one day in their life. Um, but anyway, long story short here, the person who's leading in the presidential polls is currently behind bars. And so they had a, and he's of the Workers' Party, Partidos Trabalhadores, uh, PT. And so uh, they had a presidential debate the other day, a couple days ago. Um, and he was not allowed to go to the debate because he's in prison. Um, and he has a ruling that's coming up in the next, over the next week, actually, that will determine whether or not he can actually run for president. And they've had, they've had several rounds of this and they keep his, his attorneys keep appealing them or like hoping for another case. Um, and the other problem too, is that they recently decided on who the vice presidential candidate would be, who's also a member of PT. His name's Fernando Haddad. He was formerly the mayor of Sao Paulo. And they have a communist uh, party member, Brazilian communist party member, who is running for, op running for president as well, named Manuela Davila, who came on as sort of like a, like a provisional vice president. It's sort of complicated because basically if Lula cannot run, which is highly likely, then Fernando Haddad will run as the PT primary presidential candidate and Manuela Davila will be his vice presidential candidate. If Lula by some chance is allowed to run, which is highly unlikely, then Manuela, Dav Manuela Davila will most likely also still be the vice presidential candidate under with Lula. So all that really complicated like electoral political stuff said, um, one of the things that I've noticed here is like, I mean, the country is super polarized, much as we saw in the US. You have people who are running for office who are extremely far to the right. Um, there's one character in particular named Jair Bolsonaro, who is, some have said that, oh, he's basically the Trump of Brazil. He loves hearing that because he likes Trump and he, he sees that as a compliment, but that's not quite accurate because I see him as much worse than Trump and more dangerous in a lot of ways because of his ties to the military. And he was a former military official, or at least he was a soldier. Um, during the dictatorship, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of risk there if he becomes president. And he's you know racist, violent, wants to arm every Brazilian, at least every white wealthy Brazilian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He has very similar policies to that of Trump. The other thing that's been happening here too is that the left is super fragmented, um, and because of the situation with PT right now, a lot of people are confused about what to do. There is one left candidate. Um, who's running on the Partido uh, Socialista. Um, uh, it's like for socialism and liberty. That's the name of the party, PSOL, P-S-O-L. Um, and his name is Guillermo Bolus. Guillermo Bolus is a decent guy. He has good politics, but he doesn't have very much popular support. He's not as well known outside of, um, you know, like smaller left circles. So it's a really frustrating time. And a lot of people are basically afraid that 
because they have runoff voting in Brazil. People are afraid that what's going to end up happening is that the once they do the first round of runoffs, the people who are going to be left standing are going to be Bolsonaro, who's far left, far right, and then a guy who's sort of a center right but technically right leaning candidate named uh, Geraldo Alckmin. Uh, who used to be governor of Sao Paulo, and he's terrible, and everyone hates him, except the rest of the country doesn't know him. And so it'll be very much like what we saw in the U.S. with regard to like Clinton and Trump being the two really shitty candidates that no one really likes, and they're choosing between the lesser of two evils, and they're making assumptions about what one person's going to do over another, and they don't really have um, a decent choice. The other problem in Brazil is that they have, or it's a good thing, but it's also a problem in situations like this because everyone is obligated to vote in Brazil, but they have an option to choose null, like nulu, or uh, basically like a blank vote, which I wish we had in the U.S. sometimes. Um, but in this mm -hmm. case, what happens is that if more people vote blank or nulu, then the person who has the highest number of votes wins. And that means that someone like Bolsonaro could become president, um, despite, you know, a lot of people not really liking him. Uh, he's he's ranking. He's pulling right now second place behind Lula. If there were an election today and based on what people say, they claim that they would vote the people they claim that they would vote for Lula would win. But if Lula were not allowed to run and the vote were held today, Bolsonaro would win. So it's a little bit scary and things in brazil are getting really bad economically because temer who was the vice president he was the vp under dilma who was impeached she was also a member of pt and you all probably have heard about this it was a coup basically that happened in 2016 and so temer her vp who's on the right complicated again because they can mix parties here in terms of when they make alliances between vp and president uh so anyway he's he's been cutting funding left and right and he just they just cut a big chunk of funding for a program called Copies, which basically funds like all graduate students here in Brazil, um, even for like study abroad programs. They fund a lot of archives. They fund a lot of research centers, et cetera. They cut funding for that. Um, or every, all the funding is going to go away basically as of August 2019. So even if you're like in the middle of your PhD, you're not going to get any more funding after August 2019. So it's kind of scary. And <sighs> yeah. And oh, one more thing. Yeah, Brazil closed its borders to Venezuela um, because there were lots of Venezuelan people migrating here because of the situation there. Um, and also there was a large population or fairly large, but not like, you know, overwhelming to the degree that it was hurting the Brazilian economy or anything like that. But there was a large influx of Haitian immigrants who were also fleeing from economic conditions in their country who were coming through the Venezuelan border into northern Brazil, northwestern Brazil. And, uh, they closed the border there in Haraima. And so now basically Brazil is like working towards isolating itself um, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of its, you know, funding research and, and education and sending scholars abroad and having any sorts of exchanges there. They've also been closing a lot of embassies and um, cutting down in, on term, in terms of programs that they have with a lot of other southern you know if we talk about like north south relations they had brazil had a very big um kind of uh non i, I don't know how to frame this but they they weren't necessarily sold like non-alignment policy so they basically weren't aligned with the west or you know third world countries in the sense that they weren't following orders from the us or europe 
right? Um, they were kind of doing their own thing. And so part of doing their own thing, this policy of non-alignment meant that they often built support with other quote unquote third world countries or Southern like South South relationships they built. Um, so I'm not making much sense right now because I'm tired, but I will say this, that in the process of doing, making those, uh, making those ties, they built a reputation for Brazil being one of the, the, of the, of quote unquote, third world countries, Brazil was pretty strong economically, like comparatively speaking. And so they were able to foster these sorts of relationships, diplomatic relationships, exchange programs, student exchange, foreign, you know, foreign policy exchanges. They helped put together the Iran deal. I mean, there are lots of things that Brazil has done diplomatically in the international community that's been super important. They were part of BRICS, right? Not all those ties are being cut because of the current uh, far right leaning government. And so it's really frustrating to kind of see what's happening. And I think that if someone who's, even if someone left happens to win, which at this point is like, I, I, I don't see it happening to be honest, but if, if by some chance and by some major luck, a left leaning candidate were able to win the, the, the role of president, he or she would really have to reinvent the wheel because so many of the programs that were put in place by previous presidents or by left leaning parties that they had fought very long for and had been able to establish are being overturned. So we're seeing there's a there's a, a major parallel between what we're seeing in the US right now and what we're seeing happen in Brazil. Um, and I think what's frustrating for me is that not only the situation itself, right, which is obviously frustrating for obvious reasons, but also I think this kind of latching on to certain situations that are happening around the world as if they're a trend. Um, it's one of the things that I notice on sort of the bro left, as you call it. I don't know what else to call it, but it's sort of like a, it's sort of a pop culture left. It's not necessarily a left that yeah. has like permanent fixed ideology. It's just sort of like going with leftism as a trend because it's cool right now, but not necessarily understanding sort of like the fundamentals of left ideology and left policy, especially on the foreign front. So what we see a lot of is like, or I, what I have noticed a lot of is people kind of like, oh, like I, I think there's something weird happening in Brazil. So I'm going to latch on to that. Or like some some podcast host or some like YouTuber was and went there once on vacation and like you know, kind of knows who's president. And so like they're here, mostly he, he's going to follow this and talk about it every episode of his podcast, but like, doesn't really know that much about the history. doesn't fully understand what's going on. Um, and then You'll after, after quoting the Wikipedia page, if you listen closely, yeah, yeah, like quoting the Wikipedia page or like not knowing how to pronounce not actually sourcing name. it, but quoting it, quoting it. Yeah. Also, I think this is one of my personal pet peeves, but just people who don't even try to like pronounce the names properly. Like they just don't even try. Like this, I understand that if it's, if it's in another language and you don't speak that language, it might be difficult. But like, if you hear enough people saying the word Lula, it's not that difficult to say, just say it properly. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's just try, like just, just listen to people and then mimic what you hear. I'm going to at least listen to a, like a native speaker say it and then blame them if somebody calls me on the pronunciation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, no, it, like, was, it was this guy on Twitter. I watched a video of him saying it. Yeah, gotta, no, it used to make listen. me crazy. It used, one of the, well, this is, aside, this is an aside, but one of the things that used to make me crazy was one particular podcast, which will remain unnamed, would always mispronounce this uh, there's this turkish guy who's like a religious figure and he lives in the u.s and erdogan who's the president of turkey wants him to come back to stand trial there's like all this drama and it's a big diplomatic hullabaloo craziness 
Um, and so anyway, they people were constantly mispronouncing this guy's name on this podcast. And it became like a joke for them. They kept joking about the Turkish political situation, which also bothered me because like people's lives are affected by that. But anyway, yeah, then when, they when start a press person making the joke. It's a different thing when you're looking from the outside and making the joke. Those are two different situations. Yeah. Yeah, like it's it's a problem. And so like anyway, the then what happened is like everyone started mispronouncing this guy's name wrong because they were listening to the pot. And again, this is what I mean when I say certain foreign issues becoming trendy is a problem because it cheapens mm -hmm. the effect. Not only do people get a lot of shit wrong, but it also cheapens the effect that it's having on the ground, like to people who actually live there. Like it's not a trend. This guy who's coming in who might be become president in Brazil, who's really scary, Bolsonaro, is not like, oh, some like fleeting temporary drama. Like people here are dealing with major issues economically and they're gonna, only going to get worse if another right-wing candidate comes into office. Like that's, it's a very, it's like a literal life or death. Like, am I going to have money to, to feed and clothe my children? Am I going to have food to put on the table? Am I going to have a job? Because that's the other thing, they're in a major economic crisis right now in Brazil. So like when people make jokes about these things or when it's just like this sort of trendy issue that they take on for five minutes and then drop, it bothers me because like, these are people's lives. And we saw this a lot with like, even like nobody's talking about Syria anymore. For a minute, there was like a big trend to talk about the like Kurdish nationalism. I felt like everyone was talking about Kurdish nationalism and everyone was talking about Syria. And then like, no one's talking about Syria anymore. Like you crickets, you know what I mean? So I think what we should do is we should have a more holistic approach to foreign like issues that are going on around the world. We should educate ourselves on as much as humanly possible. If you can become like a mini expert of sorts on one place, that's great and like focus on that. But I think we should also not we should not fall into the trap of just like knowing enough to to get by on a podcast and then not going any deeper than that. If you have the free time, if you have if you, I mean, you don't even need that much free time, but just understand, understand larger systems first before you're just like focusing on one country or another, like understand that this situation of like right leaning presidential candidates, is not just isolated to the U S it's not just isolated to Brazil. It's happening in Honduras in Brazil in Colombia in Turkey in the U you know what I'm saying? Like this is, this is a global issue. And so we have to understand law. I think we have to have big picture views and systemic views first and then if you get interested in a country, cool, but don't don't think of country situations as trends. Like it's not clothing at H and M. Like it's it's freaking real people's lives, you know, at the end well, of the day. And the back and forth of Twitter just plays right into it. You know, people will start an argument and then they start Googling things to continue their argument and they're not necessarily carefully checking what they're gonna then repost or re represent as their own view after they just googled it and and it, by having a more uh pluralistic and more uh, holistic view of things you can avoid that situation and then also by we talked a little bit before the podcast you know like the the battle that we see on the left or however you want to characterize it the the discussion about you know how or when or if to criticize various leaders on the left uh, internationally and when's appropriate or what's appropriate and uh, one thing that as somebody that I, I know I'm not an expert about this stuff, but one of the things that I've encountered in dealing with uh, or observing some of the that discussion is that there are a lot of people that are basing their ideology or their perspective off of uh, like 
provably false information or provably oh, yeah. incorrect information and not as a matter of, you know, oh, this propaganda says this thing and this propaganda says another thing, but things so much as we can agree on anything as a fact exist and, and they're representing something that is directly in contradiction to that fact. And that is incredibly problematic. And so like, as somebody that doesn't find myself as an expert of any of those places, I find myself wanting to inter interject into those situations, but at the same time, then I'm expected or presumed to then be defending everything or rep like representing everything of the f clarification of the fact that I'm making in that light, you know? So if I, if I say something that makes, uh, you know, some Maduro in Venezuela uh, look better than the, the post I'm responding to, then suddenly everything that Maduro has done is the best. And it's right. like, that's not what I said. What I said was you were wrong about this. <laughs> and so if you say Maduro, own, or, or the whole uh, Venezuelan economy is state owned, well, that, that you're just factually wrong about that. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, you know, there's lots of people that do a lot of investing and spend a lot of money that will tell you that's not how their economy works. It's not mm -hmm. entirely state owned. That's just a, a, a material fact that you're getting wrong in order to try to make a, an ideological point or a partisan point that is that may or may not have validity but the substance of this fact is just materially wrong and there's like so much of that everywhere it, it seems almost impossible to combat and <clears throat> you mentioned the with the brazilian thing as a usian and i'm still getting used to using that term uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just rhetorically uh as a usian like i feel that it's hard to relate but as soon as you start putting those those labels as we mentioned earlier on on characters it becomes much easier to understand and so we for those that don't understand these things or are only getting a surface level of understanding that they get comfortable there and then and build mm -hmm. off of that and so where there are some parallels between trump and the policies that you mentioned in brazil there are also significant differences that matter and yeah. if you simply just uh, if you allow people to understand the, the issue through the lens of, oh, this is Brazil's Trump. And this is and that all that means is it's Trump in Brazil versus a Brazilian like based in Brazilian context uh, that what Trump would look like there, which is which are different things. Yeah. And, and I think, too, that I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, uh, I was just going to say just and so with the labeling, it becomes easier to understand and. and it, but it also can d kind of confuse the issue if you leave it there and you don't continue to dig. And so that I think is important, but it's, it's hard for a USCN to get engaged in, in understanding that. And then the other point I just wanted to mention about that, which just confounds me generally about what you describe as, or like as described as a trend, or you pointed out some people describe as a trend internationally or whatever, is that this, right-wing nationalism as it's kind of parroted and you know oh you know i like what trump's saying is for every other country besides the u.s that ends poorly for them so mm -hmm. like only and it only works for the u.s in the sense of a corporate elite will benefit the most from a u.s base like in in that and the support staff for that will benefit some of the citizens of this country but beyond that it's it right-wing nationalism ends up with corporatism which are mostly us-based corporations dominating the globe and so for those countries like a, for, for a country like brazil it, it it's not even a path to a better future even if it worked as ideally as they could imagine it it, it still doesn't no, work. Of course not. no <laughs> and, so, because, and I mean, that's these, the difference between left and right which i think matters a lot when they talk about idealism and stuff 
Yeah. And these people are, I mean, the people who would benefit here are already wealthy. I mean, they're, Mm -hmm. they're doing great. Like they, I mean, they're, they're not as wealthy as, I mean, some of them, some of them are, but they're not as wealthy as like billionaires from the U S but they're pretty damn close. And in some cases pretty much up there, you know, like I think there is a, there's sometimes a, a misunderstanding or maybe a lack of knowledge, I guess, of, of the elites in these countries. Like we can talk about, quote unquote third world countries all day suffering but there are a lot of the suffering here is not just not just the u.s but also the freaking local oligarchs who are benefiting from what the u.s policy does to those countries right they're already taking advantage of the situation they're only getting richer with the help of basically u.s state terror it is strange how that works that no matter how poor country gets somehow some miraculous way they manage to have a money to leave (laughs) can't imagine how that works they still managed to get a billionaire. How did that happen? It's, it's amazing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's true though. I mean, that's definitely the case. The other, one of the things that you brought up too made me kind of think of another issue, which is that, you know, you were talking about how sometimes obviously we don't always have time to dig deep on subjects and sometimes the reduction or the cheat kind of um, the attempts to understand foreign situations through parallels to the U.S. can be harmful because it's not, it's, it's not always, it's never going to be one-to-one, right? Like the situation in the U.S. is never going to be exactly the same as the situation in another country. And there's all this question, these questions of local context, history, blah, blah, blah. Um, but one of the things that like also frustrates me is this kind of perceived expertise by virtue of being like a white male leftist that I see a lot. Um, and I think that also goes into the problem I was talking about of the trendiness of certain foreign issues. Um, so it's like once someone discovers, quote unquote, something himself for the first time, it becomes a novelty, right? And so that person then obsesses over this one thing, but then that quickly fades because it's like, again, it's a, it's a trend. It's a fleeting interest, um, just like a hobby that someone picks up or you know a pet that someone has when they're little. After a while, you get tired of feeding it and you go on to see, you give, make, make your mom and dad feed the pet. And then, you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of, you leave others to deal with the issue. And I think that that, there's kind of a white, a white savior complex um, of certain leftists in the West that I think is harmful to our discourse around international issues. Um, and, you know, like I've been, I've been researching in Brazil and from an academic sense for a really long time. And I still, I don't, you know, I don't see myself as an expert on Brazil. I think people can refer to me that as, as that all they want. I, I'm fluent in Portuguese. I've lived here. I come here every year. I've read a jillion books on Brazil. You know, I've lived with like everything, right? But at the same time, I think that there's a degree to which I am also constantly learning. And I understand that every experience I have here, every bit of research I do is part of the learning process. And I think I get, for me personally, I get frustrated when I see people who've, who've, like you said, read the Wikipedia page or Googled a country and they know two sentences, can't pronounce anybody's names, don't know that much about the historical context. And then they go on their, their show and they act like they're experts and it's really bizarre. And I think there are only a certain, there's certain, certain people who can get away with that because I cannot imagine personally speaking, like I can't imagine, for example, um, like, I don't know, a, a black woman with a podcast talking about being an expert on China and anyone taking her seriously if she's just been Googling it or going on Wikipedia. 
but for mm-hmm. whatever reason, and we know the reason, but you know, like, I think, I think they're, they're I, what, again, I, I'm not trying to like, you know, not all men, right. But it's mainly like <laughs> white leftist men. And again, it's part of this, like this trendy bro left that doesn't have a fully established ideology other than these trends and some, I guess, irony, like is an ideology for them, but it doesn't go beyond that. It never go. it never, they never are interested and invested enough in a certain topic to really understand that like you, and, I, and even then, like the other thing, I guess I should backtrack. The other thing that's also frustrating is when they do have on quote unquote experts, those experts also happen to be other white men. And so they never they never talk to people from that country, for example, who may maybe speak English or who you know can translate it. They never they never have on people who are local to talk about their situation in that specific country. They never have on scholars who are, you know, not white men. They don't even have on a lot, they don't even have women to talk about. I mean, it's like ridiculous, you know. And I, I mean, think if they do, it's only because it's the label that they're carrying with them and the and the brand that comes along and the the right. attention and that is what is so concerning. And it, it yeah. It seems so it's such a naked grift, yet their <laughs> their megaphone just keeps getting bigger and bigger. The more yeah. the more the more times they do it, the more causes that they loop into this this cycle, the more people that pay attention thinking, oh if I follow this person or if I pay attention to this person, I'm going to stay informed about these things. It's like, no, you're really just going to get like the, the drive-by version of it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be shallow and you're probably going to miss some of the most important and critical parts. And it, it's going to result in you saying something errant or foolish and then having to back off of it. And then backing away from all of those beliefs or just never drop at talking about them again, because your experience with the person that you trusted to inform you on these issues, giving you, uh, poor information or incomplete information has left you defenseless against the people that are have trained talking points to diffuse whatever that thing is because it's always been it's been an issue on their side for a long time or something they've cared about and for right. me i mean like you you mentioned before or uh, and that like a lot of your uh, political beliefs come from the the centering of the just the humanity of people and mm-hmm. like for people that get there as a result of political arguments it's different than people that get there than as a result of lived experiences like so for me uh my first experience of kind of delving into that was when the propaganda first started early in k-12 through with you know here's the here's the constitution and the declaration of independence and so i'm reading the declaration of independence and get through the first you know several lines and uh, you know basically the almost a page worth of writing before you get to any specific thing that has anything to do with the u.s british dynamic before that it's just talking about humanity mm-hmm. and so my uh, one of the questions i always had in civics and from understanding other people's political views is like wait our founding document you know are like the, the the notion of why we exist doesn't exclude other people it doesn't say you know only people in from the latitude of here to the latitude of there and between these longitudes have these right no it's talking about all of humanity and so any effort to abridge or to uh, affront those liberties among any people is an affront to the foundation of the best ideas of what America, like all the the hype and propaganda, all the best parts of what America is supposed to be. The exclusion of other people because they're in another border doesn't, they don't jive, <laughs> like they don't mix. It's fundamentally in opposition. It's the, 
the glorious parts of our nation's founding, the parts that they like, we like to heroize and everything, all, any parts of those that are actually decent and good are undermined by our policy, our foreign policy and our immigration policy and basically almost all of our policy <laughs> as we practice. Yeah, every, every policy, domestic <laughs> or otherwise. We, we are the tyrants that we, that we describe in that, in that section, in my view. And it, it's only a matter of time before somebody uses those words against us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always been that way, right? Like mm -hmm. there, when people, it, it's funny because not funny, but what usually ends up happening is people do use those words against, against those in power. They say, look, you wrote this. This is what this country, I mean, this is, but this is the problem. And right? I think there are right now people are doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, this is not America. This is, this is not what we are meant to be. This is not what we're founding on, founded on. But that's only in print, right? Yeah, that contradiction, as... <laughs> has, contradiction has always existed. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, it's never been it's never been like all men are created equal. It's always been there's massive levels. Of, there are massive levels of inequality here, and there were massive levels of inequality when they wrote that, and they were cool with it. You know, they were they were the ones maintaining that inequality. So there's never been a clear, you know, a commitment to the things that are on paper. And and I think, you know, in large part, people have been very critical of that contradiction and that hypocrisy. Um, but I think on the left, like, and, and I, I always use the left very generic, in a generic sense, but there are a lot of lefts, right? There, there are multiple mm -hmm. factions on the left. So I need to be clear about that. There are lefts with an S. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that there's a, there's a real problem right now with this kind of, trendy left but I, I shouldn't even say right now because it's funny the other day I was looking at I was at an archive and um one of the documents that I went through was someone who was talking about how like, it, this is a black leftist black communist or he I think he was a socialist um and he was saying you know like I'm tired of whenever I talk to leftists about Africa they don't fully understand Africa they don't understand what's going on there and they just say viva la mumba and that's about as deep as their discourse goes and I just thought to myself, like, wow, this is, we're still dealing with this, you know, like we're still dealing with people who get a name or two, they latch onto that, they don't do their research, they don't fully understand the problem, they don't really care to educate themselves on it, because they think that they know everything and they think they can speak to something because they are who they are, and they have a big audience and they have certain privileges and they can get away with saying God knows what about whatever, and people will take them seriously, trust them. And, you know, see them as an authority automatically. And I think as a country, we also have that problem. It's not, it, it, this is what's happening in this form of the left is a microcosm of a, a much larger problem that the U.S. itself has, which is, you know, the, the ability to exert power means also that it assumes a certain role of authority on its own. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of, it's a, it's mm -hmm. a you know, whoever, whoever carries the gun is the person in power. And I think the US operates in that way um, in terms of like even just basic knowledge. Like we know everything, we, we, can, we can get away with it. So whatever we say goes, and we see that kind of exertion of power in our foreign policy all the time. And, and look, I mean, Trump doesn't know anything about anybody. He doesn't, <laughs> I, I don't think he can even locate New York on a freaking map. And he's making for, he's, he's, he and Mike Pence are calling the shots about who gets to eat in the rest of the world who whose country is going to get bombed whose president is going to get assassinated whose president yeah. is going to get and sure. so like these things are serious and they don't know anything they don't have to because they're the ones with the gun you know 
yeah, the sane minds that we've put in charge of, you know, keeping him in line, or uh, a, a guy that goes by Mad Dog. Uh, <laughs> we, put, we put the 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 CIA in charge of the State Department and a known torturer in charge of the CIA. <laughs> like, yeah, that's where we're at. Great. And with all of which happened with the support of the Democratic Party, not not the full support, yeah. but none of it happened without Democratic support. So, like, that's when right. when when you're left with those two parties and told that you must choose between them and choose the lesser evil. It's like, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm stuck here, and so I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, like, it, it doesn't seem the the novelty and the the bumper stickerism and slogans and all of that. I think part of what what I'm seeing is one of my initial skepticisms around far left politics, and then something that I'm seeing getting confronted now that it's actually gaining traction and popularity is the deciphering of what is a a problem of of humans of of our humanity of our innate characteristics and what are problems as that come as a result of systems that we put in place in our adjusting and conformity to those systems mm-hmm. you know is our our tendency to to uh, exploit people is that uh, merely a product of systems is it exclusively a product of our human nature or is it a combination and how do you address that in a political and economic and social system and answering those questions uh, you can find a lot of answers in Marx, but you won't find all of them you know and you can find a lot of answers from people that have done movements but you also find a lot of wrong answers you know things things that people preached or pronounced and and the outcome was not as they foresaw and and as a result of both foreign influence and then also just uh corruption and the the pervasive influence of the systems of capitalism and and how those and how our organization of society lingers even if you try to abolish the system outright so even if you were able to overnight turn a system an economy from a capitalistic economy to a strictly communist economy you can't turn the people that exist in that country immediately from capitalist to communist that's not how it works you can't just declare that that's not and you can't just you can't threaten them or force them or any of those things into it either it's 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 a learning process and it's an understanding and even if a movement a revolutionary movement is formed the most important thing that you'll see the opposition to from those that stand to lose from that revolution is uh, allowing those people to inform themselves they'll fight that more than anything they'll they'll allow people to get riled up and to circle their wagons around some particular pop culture issue at, at a certain time and let people get all riled up and, and, and cry themselves out about it. But what they won't let you do is to really dig into the, the oppressive and institutional and systematic issues that make those things happen. That, that's what they won't let you do. That's what they won't talk about. So they'll, you know, they'll mention your Chris Murphy's talking about the U S bombing school children. You know, it's like, that's so bad and so egregious. It's almost hard to imagine a country not acknowledging the atrocity of that, especially right after the whole Syria chemical bombing issues or alleged uh, uh, chemical bombing issues. But it's a, the, the next level of actually digging into, well, how is that a perpetuation of foreign policy that preexists, not just Trump or Obama, but even before that, how, how are these manifestations of those, these long-term things? That's what they'll prevent at all costs. And it's really hard when the people that are allegedly allies in this struggle are helping perpetuate that misinformation or shallow understanding and i think that's part of what you mentioned the frustration or the anger that it arises that's where where it comes from me it's like if we want to do this thing if we actually want to resolve these situations we can't just 
count on the fact that capitalism has left people trained to respond to slogans and all those things and then use those slogans to forward the movement it's like you don't necessarily need to exclude them entirely but there has to be substance there and the there's an embrace of a lack of substance uh, that's been going on in this country for decades that goes beyond this movement or uh, many movements of the the reluctance and the the pushing away of intellectualism or being understanding what you're talking about and the focus on how things make you feel and it's like there's there's validity in that but there's also dangers in that and and the the people that stand to lose from the gaining of that information and understanding notice that and exploit it to the maximum and, and will do it at every point and can easily make people unwitting uh accomplices or uh, whatever the stu russian stooges as they're called often uh, nowadays but you know it can make people say things that are actually counterproductive to their what their true cause may actually be but they're just so programmed into the system that they ex the, they continue to perpetuate it and so that's one of the reasons why we talked about earlier about me wanting to do something perpetual with uh, my donation it's like mm -hmm. i don't fighting that balance between extending the capitalistic system and actually finding it you know non-reformist reforms is it's not something that it, it's starting to be analyzed and looked into more academically and more thoroughly but there isn't a plethora of information out there that you might find about some other more uh, more common political ideologies or lines of thought so two things first of all that was amazing as per usual because richard always brings the heat and i'm always like what love it <laughs> you know like <laughs> I'm always the one with like the jumbled words and, and missing and forgetting words and the like. Uh, so sorry, y'all. But yeah, I think two things about what you said. First of all, when you mentioned the Democratic Party and the the bombing in Yemen, it reminded me of, you know, those like those when you were. I don't know if it's even still. I mean, I guess yeah, it's still a thing. But like on PBS or any sort of news network that's kind of funded through multiple sources, at the end they'll say this this coverage was brought to you by and then they'll they'll put out all the sponsors right mm -hmm. and i just kept thinking to myself like imagine if, if after every sort of international moment of trauma when we saw it on the news and at the end it said like this event was brought to you by and then like a list of donors to like that country or a list of like weapons industries or a list of the politicians <laughs> i mean it would be great if we just had an instant rundown of who did that, you know? And I mean, it's not just, obviously it's not just individuals, it's not even individual corporations, but it's systemic. So it's it's brought to you by a whole host of problems, primarily capitalism, but whatever, you know, prop capitalism itself generates. Um, yeah. But the second thing of after I can just that, imagine them then fighting over is like, no, we, we want first listing. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Northrop Grumman has killed more people in third world countries than any other, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that would be the second, that would be the follow-up, like, this sponsor has, has <laughs> done X, yeah, I can only imagine. Sadly, sadly, that is exactly what it would be like. Um, but then the second thing, I think, just kind of to summarize what you were talking about earlier is, it goes back to the very old, at this point, talking point about decolonizing the way we think, and I think the left itself and, and even, you know, center left and beyond, right? So not just not just the far, far left, but the far, far left also needs this. We have to really find ways to rethink, reframe. You know, I think sometimes we get very caught up in like the U.S. versus the world kind of thing, or as if the U.S. and everyone within the U.S. is a monolith. 
are monolithically experiencing its power as it exerts itself around the world, which is not true. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about, we also talk about the U.S. as if it's the only country that's causing all this damage around the world, and it's it's sadly not. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, I read an art, amazing article today, um, and I'll link that in the description, this article, but the author talks about um, the necessity for us to even rethink the way we talk about anti-terror campaigns around the world. And she focuses primarily on East Africa and how there's been a major focus on like what the America, what the U.S. is doing there. And again, kind of reframing it where they're focusing primarily on Trump or very recent situations and she kind of takes us she takes us back to the Clinton administration and things that have been going on in Sudan and other areas and kind of makes us rethink the perspective because I think sometimes as USians whatever we have we have the US perspective but we don't necessarily we, we talk a lot about what the US is doing but in that process what gets lost is what other people are experiencing and kind of like how those people are living their everyday lives and how how they are interpreting these acts of terror by the U.S. as a state, you know, because it's not—it's not, it's not just—it's—it's it's not just the bombing, but it's the everyday of this kind of terror. It's not—it's not just the physical violence, but it's the—it's the sort of state infrastructure that's weakened. It's the surveillance. It's the way that the that people are sort of outsourcing of this kind of violence, right? So it's not, it's, you don't even see US troops in these places, you see local troops who are committing these acts of violence. And so there's a, there's kind of a middleman of the anti-terror campaigns. And so we have to, again, I think that we have to rethink the way that we frame these issues and we have to rethink the way that other people are experiencing the issues and we don't do enough of that. Um, and I try, I do my best to talk to people who are doing research that, that does do that. Um, but you know, even I can do more and, and in my personal life too. And so I think we just have to be really careful about who we listen to, um, and why, and, and also remember to not just center other people's experiences, but also to and not just to center other people's perspectives because they are different from ours, but to understand the actual value that comes from having a larger understanding of the world in that process and having having a vision a vision beyond ourselves which i think is super important and we don't do enough of so on that note speaking of ourselves i gotta get some sleep it's like it's midnight here i'm tired i'm old um <laughs> my brain is clearly starting to melt so I really um, appreciate you uh, doing this with with me and spending time with us and like you, you humble me when you when you uh are so kind about what i say i feel oh, please. I, oh, I, please. I, I, I mean <laughs> I, I i'm very i i look i look up to you in a lot of ways and i, I respect your, your work you do and the information that you share and all, all the stuff so uh hearing that from you matters so i appreciate that and uh i just i'll quickly thank everybody else and then i'll let you uh, close this up Oh, um, I just want to say, first of all, that you should stop because of the two of us, you're clearly more articulate on this podcast because I feel like whenever we're talking, I'm like, and I forgot what I was saying right in the middle of that sentence. Cool. You know, it's so and I'm keeping this in y'all because this is the truth. This is the raw, raw truth of this podcast. Richard is smarter than I am and he's more <laughs> articulate. And I every time I'm I'm recording, I'm just like, Usually my brain is fried and I'm not making much sense. So I apologize. And now that we have assistants, the assistants are transcribing this stuff. So God forbid, it's going to look even worse in print. So I'm very sorry. Richard is going to come out on top in this case. For sure. He should probably be the main host. <laughs>
Uh, Go ahead, Richard. I'm sorry. It works best for me when I just say what I really, when I'm able to say, when I feel like I'm able to say what I really feel and think. And it's rare opportunities that I feel that, but I feel the space and the people that are listening, the audience. And with the internet, it's hard to control your audience. So you can be taken out of context. But with uh, the people that, do listen and uh, bother to get to the juicy stuff where I say something silly like they they, under, <laughs> they understand it in a way that uh, I think uh, is it's, it's just it really it really matters and like it's this stuff's hard it's really hard to stay engaged in this stuff and to stay positive and the cynic in me thinks of determinism so there's not much I can do about it anyway really <laughs> but like I I, I fight the good fight because if other people didn't fight the good fight, I wouldn't have the opportunity. And so that's what I keep doing. And that's what keeps me going. And uh, there's so there's too much suffering for me to stop fighting. And so, uh, but there are so many practical things, you know, just the day to day. And so like the things like the Patreon and just positive comments, thumbs up and all those types of things really just help get you through, help me, at least me, get me through the day. And so uh, I really appreciate y'all. And Wendy, you keep flattering me. Stop it. It's, <laughs> hey, but uh, I'm right, though. Like, uh, <laughs> you are you are way more articulate than I am on this podcast. Uh, uh, this is why I prefer to interview other people than to talk the whole time myself. <laughs> uh, you, you mirror so many of my feelings. So, like, it's weird to hear it back reflected towards me. But, like, I I, <laughs> I will appreciate it. And, uh, and thank you. And so, yeah. thanks. And thank you all for listening. And again, um, for those of you who may not be aware, you can always get in touch with us via Curious Cat and just look up Left POC. Um, I will include more information on the Patreon, um, but of course, go to patreon.com slash left POC and you can donate a dollar or more every month to help us stay afloat and to continue to give back to the communities that we literally talk about on this pod. That's the reason why I wanted to do this, right? Because like, I feel like there's not enough reciprocity in the podcast world. There's a lot of like amassing money and then Mm -hmm. I don't know, going drinking with, I really don't know. Like the people who get like hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, I don't know what they do with their money, but I don't think it's, I don't think they put it back into like organizations or left groups or anything. So that's why I was kind of like, I want to have an alternative kind of giving back model. And so basically Anything y'all donate to Left Pocket Project not only funds the project, but it also goes to fund organizations that are doing really important work. Um, And so, yeah, keep that in mind when you donate. I'm not playing with your money. I'm literally, like, I'm I'm putting in the work, as they say. (laughs) I'm a very very strong component of transparency. And so, like, I I love that uh, about Wendy's model. And I love the reciprocity and the gift back that is huge. And having been a part of various uh, like iterations of podcasts and various things, it's 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 great to be a part of this. Um, I'm very thankful to to be a part. Yeah, so thank you again for being a part of it. Thank you for joining me in this crazy wild ride of left people of color in the world and our mm-hmm. histories, and for being one. Also, being a left person of color, Richard. anyway thank y'all so much for listening and um we like i've been really bad in terms of doing the podcast and just because my schedule has been crazy and then trying to get other people 
schedule to do the interviews has also been really, really hard because as I mentioned in a previous episode, um, academics unfortunately spend their summers doing more work because we never have any real vacations. Um, we work all year round, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so it's hard to nail some people down. But once I do nail them down, I will be reporting back to you all with real interviews and podcasts coming soon. Um, I'll also, as I said, I'll put out an update with regard to um, sort of best practices and policies and more transparency about where your money's going, information about the assistance, and also um, some other upcoming changes and things that are going to be happening on the podcast just to sort of expand our network and expand the perspectives that we hear from um, in terms of people involved in the project. So it's, it's growing slowly but surely. And with little resources, but everything you do helps every donation, every like, every share, every person you tell. Like I'm, I'm full on serious when I get, sometimes I get these tweets where it'll be like someone has never heard of the project and they've been listening to like shitty podcasts from the, like I'm just <laughs> keeping it real. Yeah, they're really. listening to podcasts that don't have the best politics and they find themselves frustrated and they're like, wow, I wish I could find like a podcast where. I learned something or I wish I could find, I like, I'm so happy I found left pocket project because it's the first podcast I've heard from like, that's hosted by people of color on the left or, you know, fill in the blank. Like I get a lot of comments like that, um, that I tend to, I try to retweet them. Um, but sometimes it's just like those comments make a huge difference because it means that again, we're not just speaking into the void and we have people that, you know, we're helping and that we're learning from as well. And that's formed this kind of, it's, it's a sort of community of sorts. And I really appreciate y'all, you know, as just kind of echoing what Richard said, but it's really true. Like, I know that in this day and age when everyone's an irony bro, it's hard to believe that we're serious about it, but we're like actually like genuinely thankful. Um, <laughs> like there's no, there's no, it's cheesy as it sounds like there's no irony here. Like I'm not, you know, like, I'm, I'm not joking. Like I'm seriously thankful and I appreciate everything that people have put into this project and helped in terms of not helping it grow. Um, and I thank you all for listening. So thanks again, Richard, for being on with me tonight. It's a night, by the way, we're recording this. You're probably listening <laughs> to it when it's not night, but yeah, it's night for us. So thank you again, Richard. I appreciate it. And uh, thank y'all. Have a good one. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. You can learn more about the project by visiting Twitter and going to at leftpoc, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C, on Facebook at leftpoc. You can also find out more on patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you can give us a donation. You can also visit us, at least the podcast, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spreaker. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Have a good one.